Travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Welcome to Talk Travel Asia, episode 78, Our Favorite Asian Adventures. We've been lucky to travel quite a bit and continue to do so. Between Trevor and I, we usually end up in 10 plus countries in a year. Last year was quite a bit more, and just like you, we're getting older one day at a time. While reminiscing over a couple cold beer about trips we've enjoyed, we decided it was time to share a few of our noteworthy Asian trips that still resonate. So buckle in and get ready to travel with us on our favorite Asian trips. This is Scott Coates from Bangkok, and way across a big piece of water is... Trevor Ranges in Honolulu, Hawaii. How you doing, Scott? Good, man. That's a long way away. Yeah, it's like a, it's it's backwards in time. It's now yesterday here. Yeah, you're like seventeen or eighteen hours behind me, right? It's yep. a big change. So it's a nice yeah. uh, afternoon here, and it's uh, hopefully a nice morning there. And uh, I think we got a pretty fun episode for people today, kind of like uh, the tantalizing travel tales. Yeah, this was a tough one to put together in a way because we we started noting trips, and immediately we're like, oh, we have like an hour plus episode worth of stories. And then we're like, is there a theme and how do you pick which one? So full disclosure, I think I just kind of quickly looked at my list and just picked a couple that jumped out and that's it. And it's lucky to have so many stories to pick from that we have more than an episode's worth. You know, it's kind of interesting when I was brainstorming some of my best ones, I found out that most of them were from my first trip my first trip to Asia where I went to multiple countries and uh, you know I've kind of touched on some of these sometimes probably when we were doing uh, you know like an overview 24 hours in or impressions of uh, but uh, some of these stories are pretty crazy so I think we probably only have time for a few of them today Um, Hmm. so hopefully we can tell them all again some other time. Yeah and I'm I'm looking at, at, at mine I think the theme is outdoors and physical for the most part and um, developing places in the world. So anyway, I, you're a much better storyteller than I am, Trevor, so I'd like to ask you to kick things off here. Okay. Uh, thanks, Scott. That's a nice compliment. Uh, <laughs> let's hope I can do a good job. Uh, my first story is going to be about the first time I went to Thailand in 1996. Um, and this whole adventure where I traveled all over Southeast Asia, I tried to do as much hitchhiking and camping as possible. I tried to avoid staying in guest houses or hostels and, and tried to, to get around uh, using my thumb. So I hitchhiked wow. to Pak Chong from Ayutthaya. Where's um, Pak Chong? Pak Chong is a little town near Khao Yai National Park. Okay, so like a couple hours north, kind of east of Bangkok, right? Yeah. Um, so Khao Yai National Park is, I believe, the oldest national park in Thailand, maybe the biggest. It's definitely one of the premier attractions for, for getting It's so a UNESCO outdoors. World Heritage Site. Is it now? Huh? Great. Yeah. So uh, back in those days, I don't know if they still have them now, they had little pretty simple basic huts. It was just kind of like four walls that had like netting around like two sides of it or at least one side. So they were rainproof <laughs> and you, they didn't have beds or anything. You just slept on the, on the floor. 
right. um, pretty simple but cheap. And there there was a, a couple other people there. And so during the day, we went out to like a hide, which is like a thing you climb up and you can look out over the landscape to try and animal watch and stuff like that. And we saw some, yeah. we saw some guys with, with machine guns rolled in there one whoa. afternoon. Yeah, and we we're like, whoa, it's kind of scary. So we got to know them a little bit later at the dinner in the, in the national park. There's like a little place to eat. Um, and these guys turned out to be poacher hunters. So they were in the park looking for poachers. People trying. Oh, poacher hunters. They're yeah. hunting the poachers. They're hunting poachers. Yeah. Ah, when I read your notes, I'm like, man, a story about poachers? <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, so they were like army or something like that, you know? I got it. Okay, and, cool. Uh, so we started asking about like wild animals that you could see in the park and stuff like that. And they told us that the best place to see wild elephants was at a salt lick. Uh, There's a place that they can get salt naturally that was just down the road from where we were staying. So uh, that night, the uh, four of us decided to, to set out with our flashlights and go walking through the park to see if we can spot some wild elephants. Um, now, we were afraid of tigers because supposedly there's still tigers in the park and we were afraid that, you know, like maybe a tiger is going to eat us if it sees us walking around uh, in the middle of the night. And as you're walking along the road, there's no lights or anything out there. So your flashlight would shine in the woods and you'd get a pair of eyes like reflecting back and you'd freak out. But it was probably just like a deer or something like that, you know? So <laughs> we crossed over this little bridge and, uh, we decided to stop there for a while because we're like, okay, you know, like this is kind of a safe place because we can see around. And, and then, uh, next thing you know, we, we started talking about the elephants and we're like, Hey, you know, like if the elephants are going to the salt lick, that's just off the road, like they wouldn't cut through the jungle, right? They would come along the road, you know? And right. like, what if we came around the corner and we startled like a pack of elephants and they decided to like stomp us, you know? And I've then, seen videos like that online. Right. And there's a, we, we, there was a story about a monk who was killed by an elephant in Kauai national park that we had read about it, like the visitor center. Okay. So, we had been walking a little farther down the road and we heard this squeak, you know, elephants kind of make this squeak noise. And we totally freaked out and we ran back to the bridge and we we're like, oh my God, oh my God, elephants are going to kill us. So we totally forgot about the tigers and we decided that like, it was probably too dangerous to be walking around uh, looking for wild elephants at night. And so we went back to our hut and we spent the night. So the next day we went to the national park headquarters um, and, and we asked them, hey, uh, just Theoretically speaking, like if we wanted to walk around at night with flashlights looking for wild elephants, would that be cool? And she's like, oh, no. You know, she's like, no, you can't do that. And we're like, oh, but why? She's like, tigers. And we're like, oh, really? The tigers again, huh? And uh, we're like, yeah, but if there's four of us and we're making lots of noise and then we have flashlights, we'd probably scare a tiger off, right? And she said, no, no, you know, like a hungry tiger um, will pretty much attack and eat anything because it doesn't have any natural predators in the wild, you know? Um, and in fact, she told us, someone had been killed by a tiger in, the, in the, the huts that we were staying in. Like, there was a tiger underneath one of the huts and someone dropped like a pen or something like that and bent down to pick it up and the tiger like, reached out and snapped its neck, the person's neck, and like dragged it off into the woods. Ooh. So we're okay. like, ooh, okay. <laughs> so that day we uh, rented mountain bikes, uh, me and the one guy, Alan, and uh, we, we were riding along the road and we saw a little track that dropped off to the side, so we started doing some like single track, and, and it turned out to just kind of be like a, an animal track, you know, like that animals used. And I was riding along and it was like high grass to the left and all of a sudden there was a little body of water to the right and I was like, oh, you know, this is a nice place to stop and if you're an animal, maybe stop and have a drink and then I thought like, and if you were a tiger, you could just wait here on the high grass and attack any animal that, that stopped 
And I looked down and in the, in the mud, there was all sorts of animal tracks. And one of them was like this huge paw print. And I was like, ah, and I yelled at Alan and we jumped on the bikes and we hightailed it out of there. <laughs> now, in retrospect, I think the paw print was probably from uh, like a Malaysian sun bear or like, the, you know, those okay. have like black bears in, uh, in Thailand. And I don't think that was actually a tiger paw print, but uh, it was pretty scary. So that was my... Uh, first introduction to, to the wildlife in Thailand and we did see elephants when we went driving around at night but uh, I have still yet to see a tiger in the wild. Yeah that's pretty cool I, I've heard you know numbers as high as 2,000 or so from John Roberts who's been on uh, one of our episodes before. Um, I have limited experience in Khao Yai but it is quite surprising to a lot of people that if you go just about two and a half hours northeast of Bangkok to Khao Yai, I believe it's one of the oldest forests in Southeast Asia almost. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site and there is a relatively high population of wild elephants and tigers so it's a legitimately you know kind of world-class park not so far from Bangkok. Man I, I'm envious of that experience. I've never gone trekking there. Yeah and now 20 years later they probably have <laughs> slightly nicer bungalows. They might have beds now right? <laughs> yeah, well, the larger area I know has all kinds of crazy themed hotels outside of the park, but man, that's a good story. That really makes me want to go there and hike around. Right on. What do you got? Well, I'm going back to the year 2006, Trevor, and I remember in about 2005, I was reading the Bangkok Post, and there was a story a guy had written about cycling from Lhasa, Tibet to Kathmandu, Nepal. And it was just, it was about a, like a page and a half spread and the pictures were fantastic. And I mean, it just showed this guy riding a mountain bike across, you know, vast distances over 5,000 meter passes and it had links <clears throat> to a couple companies that do these tours. And I wasn't, and nor am I now an athlete or a, a huge cyclist. Like I had a bike, I liked to mountain bike, but the longest rides I'd ever done were probably, you know, 50, 60 kilometer off-road rides. But I somehow decided at that moment, I was like, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to just make this happen. I didn't know how, but uh, I'm going to do it. And <clears throat> I started contacting a few friends and contacting a few companies and finding out some logistics. And next thing, we had a group of uh, four. My friend Greg Wilson from Calgary, uh, my friend Donna Joan from Calgary, Canada, and uh, a guy that still lives here, a friend of ours, Derek Van Pelt. And we set off on what was about a three-week, bit over three-week trip you fly to Kathmandu first, and we had to take, you know, all of our stuff, our own bikes and boxes, and spent three days in Kathmandu getting to know that city, and they apply for your visas there for Tibet, because you need special permits for Tibet, and the conditions uh, for permits are continually changing still to this day. Then we flew to Lhasa, and Lhasa is about 3,400 meters, somewhere around there. So you arrive there, and I mean, the name Lhasa is so mystical, and we arrived at the hotel, and I remember my uh, room was on the fourth floor, and I just grabbed my big duffel bag and started hoofing it up the stairs, and about halfway up, and I almost passed out, because I just sort of hadn't thought about the altitude factor. So... Um, yeah, we spent about three days seeing Lhasa, and the main reason was just to acclimatize because you go from, you know, sea level in Bangkok or close to it to plus 3,000 meters you need time to acclimatize. So got to know that city a bit. I mean, went to the Patala Palace and the Jokong Temple, and yeah, it was, it was amazing. But then kind of the real work began, and at that time, um, it was two years pre-Beijing Olympics, and the Chinese were paving the road to Everest Base Camp on the Chinese side. And at that time, the roads were all gravel. So here we were, typical days were about 80 days out on the bike, um, on gravel roads. 
and just kind of nothingness. And it was it was incredible to be out cycling and there'd just be rocks, there'd be no trees. Uh, you might see somebody in a stone house. And uh, it was really weird as you'd be cycling for hours without seeing anyone. And then you'd see some kid in like a field of stones off in the distance and he'd be running to try and get to the road to meet you to like ask for a pen mm. or something. And then, um, yeah, it would get windy every afternoon. The wind would start and you'd be cycling into wind and that wind would make grooves across the gravel road. So it was like bump, 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 bump. And I remember as beautiful as it was, there was days where you're just cycling into wind over these bumps. And it was a real mental tough test, really. And it was kind of one of the the hardest things I've had to do is some days just thinking like, okay, keep going. It's going to be okay. And we were lucky. We had a crew that accompanied us, a, a big vehicle that went first with tents and bags and stuff. They would prepare lunch and dinner and set up camp like we were really spoiled that way. And a chase car that would come now and then. We think the guide and the driver would go and have drinks because they would disappear hmm, for probably. long periods of time. But, um, yeah, we were spoiled with that. And I remember one night you'd run into some other cyclists. We thought we were doing this epic adventure. And we had finished our day sitting at camp having a Pabst Blue Ribbon. That was the beer that was around oh, yeah. for whatever reason in Tibet. And above us on the road comes this Canadian guy we'd met earlier named Guy. And he's pulling his own trailer as well with all this stuff. And he was the happiest guy. And he's like, hey, guys, I'm just going to push on to the next town. And that next town was our whole next day ride. So he was basically passing us at close <laughs> to sundown, pulling his own gear and cycling on to the next town. But... When I look back on pictures of that trip, we did five or six passes that were over 5,000 meters. And these passes would be a very, very low grade, but over 20 kilometers in length generally. And over 20 kilometers, you would ascend, let's say, anywhere between six and 800 meters. And you'd just kind of go back and forth over these long switchbacks to, you know, over 5,000 meters. And, and that was five or six times. And I, I would try and either ride two kilometers or 20 minutes and then have a bite of my power bar. I remember that was the real mental game. And you'd look down after a couple hours of climbing and just see these crisscrosses below you and see your friends below you. And you'd get to the top and there'd always be uh, Tibetan prayer flags and just blue skies and clouds. And it was it was always like being in a dream. And even to this day, I mean, we'll post photos of this on the on the show notes. But I look at the photos today and I'm like, I cannot believe I was there, like these huge turquoise lakes. And I remember being atop a 5,200-meter pass, and people had stacked rocks, so I stacked some. And then there was this big, huge dog all alone up there. And I was just thinking, like, what is this dog doing here? And then, uh, you know, we got to Everest as well. I mean, that was a real highlight, camped at uh, 5,200 meters at a monastery and had what the guide said was the only time he has seen clear weather for two days. So literally just look out your tent, and there's Everest right in front of you. Wow. And we rode up to base camp. It took us uh, an hour to go six kilometers and climb 100 meters at that altitude. But yeah. we had a Pabst Blue Ribbon at uh, Everest Base Camp. And um, we went nine days without a shower. It was the longest stretch without a shower on that one. And Do, then, you, do you sweat a lot? Uh, I mean, you're doing a lot of... Yeah, you do and you don't. You, you probably are, but it's super dry. Yeah. Like It's just really, really dry and blue sky. So even if it's not hot, like when we were there, it was probably, you know, 15 in the day. So I think a lot of your um, perspiration just evaporates real quick because yeah. it's so, so dry out there. So you weren't, no, you weren't necessarily that wet with sweat. But what was quite interesting from a physical 
point of view is um, at the end, you drop from Tibet down into um, Nepal. And I think you drop something like 2,000 meters over 20K or something. They say it's the longest downhill in the world. And then when we did that drop and then you start cycling, it's like you're Superman. You feel like you've been injected with steroids or something because you suddenly hit thick oxygen again. And after three weeks of your body performing in this thin air, you hit full air and it's just incredible. We shot off like rockets and uh, had one night on the way to Kathmandu and then rolling into Kathmandu seemed like we were rolling back into the complete developed first world, which actually, yeah. I mean, Kathmandu right. is a pretty Relatively speaking, <laughs> third yeah. world place. But it was, uh, yeah, I look back on pictures of that and I, like I said, I can't believe I did it. But to me, it stands out as um, an example where sometimes when you have the opportunity for an experience or a trip, you got to take it because I remember couple people were like, oh, wait till next year and I'll come. And, and it wasn't, certainly wasn't far from the perfect time to do the trip, but I don't think it would ever happen again. Like it was, the opportunity was then, I seized it and, and I looked back, I'm like, wow, like what an incredible trip. So that was, uh, that's sort of my first tale, Trevor. Wow. Okay. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I like that one. And you probably got some great photos because I know in general you do take uh, photos pretty uh pretty consistently uh my, my yeah i have some good ones we'll put up my trip that i'm uh, telling about uh, leaving thailand now i went down to malaysia first and then over to sumatra um i traveled with a super 8 movie camera so i actually have some super 8 footage uh but i don't super have eight. yeah i don't have any like the camera f pictures really but uh yeah i went down from thailand into malaysia and then i decided to make a side trip to sumatra and even back then, like the, the Mentawi Islands and Nias in particular are famous for surfing. So like Nias and the Mentawis were famous even back in 96, you know, but it's really remote. Like it, it's, it's pretty far away from anywhere, you know, um, and now people take to take uh, boat surfing excursions. Um, I wasn't sure how I was going to get there. I didn't have a board, but I took a ferry across from Penang. Uh, Georgetown in Malaysia across to uh, Medan in Sumatra and I really had no Ooh. idea what to expect. Have you have you been to Medan? I've not been to Medan but I know it's a jumping off point if you want to go to northern Sumatra and I've heard it's not a terribly nice town. <laughs> yeah no I, it was unlike anywhere I'd ever been before. It, it's got a multi-million person population and uh, I was the only white person I saw. Uh, I don't think back in 96 there was a whole lot of tourists uh, going to Medan. Uh, I got a room for a nap, and I heard Muslim prayers for the first time in my life, which was very uh, surreal, you know? Yeah, it is. Eh? Um, and then I, I was going to go up to uh, Bukit Luang, which is the place we've talked about before, where they have the Orangutan Rehabilitation Center. Um, yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio has been there and promoted it and stuff. This is back in 96, and it was, it was in operation back then. So I needed to get a bus up there. So I went to the bus station and, and no one spoke any English. And it was really frustrating to try and figure out like, cause there's no bus to like book it Luang, you know, it was like you had to take a bus to a certain place and you had to hop off at a certain point along the way. And, and I kind of lost my shit a bit that day. I didn't, I didn't lose it too often, but I was just like, Oh my God, like, what am I doing? Where am I? And like, how am I going to get anywhere? You know? Um, but I made it up to Bukit Luang and, and the Orangutan Rehabilitation Center, and, and I did an amazing uh, multi-day trek up there uh, that uh, is a story for another day, but it was a, a really amazing experience. Um, from there, I jumped on a, a public bus to go to Lake Toba, 
So Lake Toba is like mm. a big volcanic crater in the in north central Sumatra, and you can see it on a map of of the world almost. It's, it's this massive lake with an island in the center of it that was formed by a volcanic explosion. And mm. uh, I looked on a map, and it was only like a hundred miles on the map, right? But but it was a six hour bus ride, and there was when I got on the bus, there was like no seats on the bus and and the ceilings were only about five feet high so I couldn't even stand up so I just sat on the floor of the bus and it was packed so I was just like legs all around me and I just sat there like bumping along on the ground for for hours until eventually a, a seat opened up and uh, and I sat down next to this nice man who's like smiling and he wanted to show me like his box that he was carrying uh, which was full of baby chickens. And that was the first time I'd seen like a box of baby chickens <laughs> on a bus too. Um, yeah, it's not an everyday occurrence. No, in, uh, you know, US. you live in Asia for a while and you, you get used to little things like that. But uh, certainly that day I was like, this is crazy, you know. Um, from the bus, I had to walk a bit to get to Lake Toba, but uh, I got there and it was amazing. There was only one other guy there. Um, we, we got a place like right on the lake, uh, swam in the lake. Uh, I had one of my best haggling experiences there where they, they have these uh, indigenous people that live in these really cool longhouses and uh, they're like shaman or, or mystical men have these, these staves that are carved with like people and geckos and, and crocodiles and stuff like that like on it and it was such a cool souvenir I wanted to buy one of those and it's like there was a souvenir shop, but it was next to some rice fields, and, and the woman tending the rice fields was the one who finally came over into the shop and, and haggled with me. But I don't remember how much she wanted for it. Let's just throw a random number out there. She's like, it's 500000 you know? And I'm like, 50000 yeah? And we haggled for a while where I got up to like 80000 and she came down to like 450000 And I was like, yeah, all right, just forget it. And I, I walked out of the store and I started walking back to the road and she started walking back to her rice field. And I was like, where are you going? I'm like, you're not going to have another customer here for like a month. I'm sure of it, you know? I'm like, we, we got to be able to come to a deal. So we went back inside and, and she came down to maybe like 380 and I came up to like 160 and then finally I was like you know what I, I don't really what am I going to do with this thing anyway so I decided to start walking out she starts walking back to her rice field and I'm like you're just going to walk away that easily you're going to let the sale go away <laughs> and uh, I think I ended up paying 320 for it um, and it, it, it cost more to ship back to, to California where I had been living before my, my trip um, from there, uh, getting back to Medan, getting back to Malaysia, and then hitchhiking down the east coast of Malaysia, like, it was a pretty amazing uh, adventure. But Sumatra, back in 96, uh, you know, I, I bumped into that one other white guy. Actually, that was funny. The, the one story I had with him that was fun was we were walking along the dirt road near that gift shop that was going to this mm -hmm. like, indigenous people village and it was like a hundred degrees out easily because we're pretty close to the equator there yeah and it was so hot and, I, and we were just like god how nice would an ice cream be and then i started going like do 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 you know the walls ice cream song that the ice cream trucks play oh, yeah, yeah, and he's yeah. like come on he's like don't do that right and then so i stopped and then i'm like oh my god can you hear that can you hear that like it's the walls ice cream song and he's like shut up and next thing you know this little like motorbike Wall's ice cream cart rolls up and, and, and we, he just parked right next to us and we ate like three or four ice creams each and that was one of the best ice cream experiences of my life. It, it was, was destined to be. It was. It's it incredible. Yeah. Did you see the orangutans? Yeah, we did. That was really cool. The orangutans in uh, Bukit Loang. Uh, really cool because they have like a rehabilitation center where they re-release them into the wild 
and uh, you get to hike through the forest where they're in the wild and we were just surrounded by orangutans up in the trees and they said be careful because they'll just grab you like your backpack and they can lift you off the ground but they're all uh, pretty nice as long as they stay in the trees they're only threatening when they go on the ground and they had babies okay. and we got to we were like hand-fed orangutans like uh, bananas which is the only thing that they feed them because they want them to to be encouraged to go find uh, more other types of natural foods but yeah it was amazing baby orangutans orangutans like all around us feeding them by hand it was it was really cool and that was in 96 yeah yeah oh so in 22 years you can figure it's changed a lot but that's one i've really wanted to do is go see the orangutans there okay you've got me excited Okay, um, my next one is, man, I feel like mine pale in comparison to yours. And as you've been telling stories, I think of interesting moments on trips. But this is one that just, I don't know, I think it's because I love this area of Thailand so much. And uh, in about 2004 or three, one of my best friends, who was actually on the Tibet trip, uh, Greg Wilson, he came to Thailand and we went up to northern Thailand, the most northern province, Chiang Rai, with the idea to hike and mountain bike a lot of a kind of a what's a county in the u.s right your states are broken up to counties in the u.s, it's in the US. yeah yeah so here it's called an ampu and it's called ampu mefalua and it's sort of in the northwest part of chiang rai province uh, a lot of it borders Myanmar on the west and he and i headed out for six or seven days of you know again mountain biking and hiking i'd sort of arrange little pickup trucks to drive us point to point the first day we did some you know medium-grade mountain biking along the main river that flows into Chiang Rai called the Mekok River. And then we took a truck up to my favorite place in Thailand, Doi Mesalong, which I've mentioned on this show before. And up there we did two days of mountain biking. And the pass there, there's some great, they're just footpaths that Aka Hill Tribe people have used for years, but they're steep. So it's either steep down or steep up. And, you know, after each day of mountain biking, we'd, we'd have a couple beer and we'd have some big food. And then I think it was our fourth day, we had decided we were going to hike what we thought was about 20 kilometers uh, northwest again to this place called Tudtai. And Tudtai was really famous back in the 70s and even into the early 80s here because a big drug lord, one of the biggest at the time, a guy named Kun Sa, who commanded a military of up to 30,000 troops at a time. Yep. He was a big opium drug lord. So that was a big corner of Thailand where... Um, opium was being produced and the Thai authorities and the U.S. government had tried to go and negotiate with Kun Sa a few times. I actually met the Thai negotiator. He still lives there. So I had mountain biked and dirt bike trails to uh, Tud Thai before. But as we looked out from our balcony out into the terrace tea fields that are up there, I saw this kind of cut across a mountain and it was a very gradual grade cut. And I was like, I wonder what that cut is. So we decided we were going to hike down and we were going to try and find this cut and then follow the cut around the mountain and go over the mountains and walk to Tidtai. And on our walk to this cut that was not very far from town, that ended up taking, I think, like two or three hours. And the cut, it turned out, was an ingenious little channel that moved water from a waterfall that was a couple mountains back. And it would just, on a very, very gradual grade, they had cut this trough to move water around a couple mountains. So we literally walked through it and you would see this water flowing down into the rice fields in a very remote spot. We then have to climb up a hill, we realize. We get up to the top of the hill and we're about four hours in, but we've only probably gone seven, eight kilometers and we're out of our three liters of water. So we can, we're standing on a hill and we can see town where we've come from 
and the town we're going to is a long ways away, and it's like, you know, well into the 30s, and uh, we're out of water. I remember it's the only time I've really been out and been like, oh my, I'm, I'm like, this is not good. But we realized we've got to go for it. And I knew there was a forest station partway in, in kind of along the border with Myanmar. So we just kept walking. And I remember being so thirsty. And, and we came upon the forest station. And I kind of yelled around the buildings there. And finally, somebody came out from the forest and thankfully gave us some water. But I also remember thinking, I wonder if this water is okay to drink. But also thinking, yeah, I'm sure it is. It's probably rainwater. The long, I mean, the short part of this long story is we then kind of continue downhill and we make it to Tudtai. In fact, somehow we jogged the last 2K into town. It was an incredible hike and one that I, I kind of wish I could do again. But what got interesting about this story and, and kind of it stands out because of the time I had a physical problem that I've never had since is the next day we tried to cycle some incredibly steep back roads to a place called Doitung. And Doitung is a royal reforestation project. They grow coffee up there. They've reforested the mountains and gotten people out of growing opium. And as we rolled into the hotel at Doitung, both of us felt terrible. This was our fifth day. And I remember we couldn't figure it out. Like it was a feeling I've never had before. I've never had since. And that night we go to dinner and we order, it's called a, a Manao soda, which is a lime soda. And in, as soon as we tasted it, we were both like, this is the most incredible beverage. And we just pounded it. We had a second one. We had a third one. And then I had some salt and I realized that we had over five days sweat so much and we had not replaced the salt. So we were actually beginning to suffer sodium deficiency, which I, after that, I talked to a doctor and he's like, oh yeah, that's, that's like a really bad problem. Like you, you can be in serious trouble. So we literally were licking salt off our hands and our palms and by the next morning, we felt way better. It was incredible just eating salt. So since then, I've told people, if you're in really hot conditions for a couple days doing stuff, eat salt. So the next day, we uh, rode our bikes on maybe the most exciting road in Thailand. You go up about another 12 kilometers to a uh, peak called Doi Chang Mub, which means kind of lane sleeping elephant. And there's a 20K steep, steep road that literally forms the border between Thailand and Laos. You drop down to Mesai, the northernmost point spent a night and then we did an 80 kilometer ride kind of down the northeast corner of Chiang Rai province following the Mekong River to a town called Shengkong. And uh, yeah, that week of adventure, like I've been lucky enough to have lots and lots of days of biking and hiking, a few here, a few there, but like an intense week like that. Some of those routes I've never done since in that way. Um, although we kind of ran out of water and we had the salt experience, it was one of the few times where I've really felt physically pushed to the limits. So yeah, that was a, I mean, some crazy thing happened, but it was just an inc incredible trip. Yeah, you're, you're right. Your theme, your theme was kind of like pushing yourself to the physical <laughs> limits. And mine were like, I hope I don't die from stupidity out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. And yours were wildlife and mine were kind of bikes and feet. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We've uh, got contrasting themes here. Well, it's hard to believe we've already gone. I know. That's why it's too bad we couldn't have done more. I, the Malaysia part of that trip's got some pretty uh, crazy stuff. Uh, we, we talked about the Prehension Islands we've both been to. Yeah, you went uh, not, not just a few mm. years ago, yeah? Yeah, four or five years ago. Yeah, and like we discussed that one time when I stayed there, I showered by throwing a bucket down a well and dumping it over my head. And I guess <laughs> it's changed a bit. Sure, yeah, it's, uh, there were proper showers when we were there. Well, I, I mean, this is, is fun. Is when you were talking, it got me thinking to so many little things that have happened, like a bus ride in Bolivia, being stuck for almost 48 hours in the jungle on a bus. And I remember another ride in Thailand, monks literally falling asleep on me on a bus. Yeah. And, 
So we should almost do an episode of weird moments, but it's fun or to remember just, these. Just and bus I feel moments, fortunate. man. I got a lot of bus stories. <laughs> bus stories. Okay, we could do bus stories. So, yeah, those are cool stories, man. You've inspired me to uh, definitely want to go over to Sumatra. So that's a little higher on my list. Um, yeah, I never made hope it. To, we've inspired. Yeah, I never. Sorry to interrupt. I never made it to Nias on that trip either. It's just like when I realized it took six hours to go a hundred miles, and uh, Nias was probably uh, another thousand miles away. <laughs> I kind of gave up hmm. on that leg, but uh, yeah, maybe we can do that someday. Well, look, um, we're going to have some good pictures on the show notes, but also on our uh, photo gallery on Facebook. So make sure you check those out. We may get to a Google map on this. I'm not sure, but I uh, hope we've inspired you with travel. It's fun to share our travel stories. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, Trevor, why don't you take us out? Okay, everybody, thanks for listening. I think I am going to do a Google map for this one because uh, I think it definitely helps. And I, I think, you know, I don't know how many people who listen go to our show notes or how many people who go to our show notes end up listening, but uh, they definitely complement each other well. So go to www.talktravelasia.com and check out the show notes. Or if you're listening on SoundCloud or iTunes or Facebook, uh, I hope you enjoyed it and we'll be back in two weeks. Uh, we already wrapped that one up and it's a pretty good one. So uh, stay tuned. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom and Camp